Okay, so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5. We're going to be finishing Luke chapter 5 today, church. We will be in verses 33 through 39. And I think what we'll do, we'll go ahead and read that text first of all here. And, um, so this is one of those passages, guys, as I was saying a while ago, that, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're honest like me and you've read this passage, you know, it's, all, it's in all three synoptic Gospels, this, this passage here, that maybe you've read it and you just always got, what, what exactly is he getting at here? So that's what we'll talk about today. In Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through 39, it says this, And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayer and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out. The skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I would just ask that you would just give me grace today to communicate this, Lord, clearly, that your Holy Spirit would apply it to each one of our lives, God, that we would grow to love our Savior more, that we would love His work on the cross more. Um, Father, help, help your people hear your word and, and receive it and apply it. And God, we just pray most of all that our Savior would be glorified through this message, Lord, and that you would use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the message today is The Gospel Stands Alone. The Gospel Stands Alone. So before we start looking at this, at this passage, just by way of introduction, uh, you know, I think I'll tell you this, most of you probably realize this, but we live in an age of... Uh, Religious pluralism, do we not? Uh, phrases like, you've probably heard these phrases, coexist, how we can all just coexist, all religions are the same. There's no difference. We all worship the same God. Um, you've heard the word, we've, we've discussed it in Sunday school as of late, ecumenical. Really just the same meaning that all religions can come together because after all, we worship the same God. You think of the prayer breakfast that they have in Washington, D.C. And, and other places as well, and they just welcome all religions. Because after all, we worship the same God. So they say, all beliefs are valid. But is that what Jesus taught? No, that's not what Jesus taught at all. When we think of His all famous passage that we all are familiar with in John 14, 6. Did Jesus say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. <laughs> no, He said, I am the way. Isn't that amazing what one little word will do? He emphasized that I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. That is exclusive. His apostles repeated the same. Uh, Peter and John, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they were standing before the Sanhedrin, Israel's basically Supreme Court. 
arrested for preaching the gospel. Again, <laughs> they were always getting into trouble preaching the gospel. And, and this is what they said in Acts 4.12, that there is salvation in no other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That, that statement alone, these kind of statements will get you into trouble. It will. You can... We can, we can say, hey, Jesus is one of the ways. Nobody has a problem with that. But when you say Jesus is the way, it's an offensive message. Right? Because what are you implying? What, what, are, what do people take from that? Well, then you're saying my way's wrong. Yes. Well, that's arrogance. No, it's not. It's, it's being faithful to the truth. If you want to call Jesus arrogant, then okay. But that's what He said. And hopefully even after this message, we'll be able to see even more clearly why He said it. This is the truth of the gospel, beloved. This is exclusive. This is the one and only gospel. There's not any other gospel. This is the one and only. There's what we would call false gospels with what Josiah just read for us a while ago. Let me read just a few verses out of that. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. Listen to Paul here. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. That's the key right there. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not according to man. It didn't come from man. Man did not invent it. Why do I emphasize that? Because every other religion of the world was invented by man. And there's a difference. The gospel alone is not according to man. He says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Beloved, that the, very, the very teachers that Jesus is confronting in, in the Gospels, that's what they were teaching, this Judaism. Paul was a Pharisee. And he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. We've been talking about that lately, have we not? These men and their traditions. That's what Jesus is attacking. He, Jesus is on the attack. We're, the Pharisees, you're going to keep seeing them pop up again and again through the Gospels, and Jesus is confronting them. Why? Because of their traditions that they elevate above God's Word. And then, and then verse 15, Paul says, But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. There you go. That's the Gospel right there. God calls us by His grace. Not by anything we do. Right? Not by our baptism. Not by our good works. Not by our giving money. Not by our knocking on doors. Not by our keeping some kind of law or works. No, He calls us by His grace. That is the Gospel. There's only one, like Josiah just emphasized. There's only one. And so this is the conflict, beloved, that we're going to see in the text and we see in our world that there's only one gospel. And sinful men don't like to hear that. Religious people don't like to hear that. So Jesus, as He goes through His ministry, He is out, beloved. It is His mission to bring this system down. This false system. To expose it for what it is. This system that the Pharisees has, has created, they have created. And it, which ultimately led to his crucifixion, did it not? The opposition of the religious leaders of, of Israel. This man claims to be God, right? We saw that last week or two. 
And eventually they're going to cry out, crucify him. Because this man claims to be God. And again, his apostles as well. He said, a student is not above his teacher. They hated me, they'll hate you too. The same goes for us. We preach the truth of God's word, they will hate us. Doesn't mean every single person. But when you think about, obviously that led to his crucifixion, his apostles, everyone but one was martyred. They were beaten and jailed multiple times for preaching by their by the religious leaders in Israel, right? Stop preaching in His name. What would they do? Preach in His name. But it wasn't just the religious leaders of Israel. It was the pagan world as well. The kings and the emperors. and The Roman Empire. Just to mention a few of the apostles, King Herod beheaded James the Apostle. I think, I think James was the first one to lose his life of the apostles. He was beheaded. Paul was beheaded by Nero. Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. The Apostle John was boiled in oil by the Emperor Domitian. He survived it, but then he was sentenced to prison on the island of Patmos. You know what they would tell him? In summary, the pagan emperors and the those of Rome they, they could care less whether they preached in G- Jesus' name or whatever because they had all these other gods. They said, you can have Jesus, but you just need to confess that Caesar is Lord. That was, that was their emphasis. And that gives context to Paul's statement in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. What did he say? That if you confess with your mouth that who is Lord? That Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. See, to confess Jesus is Lord would cost you your life during that time. It's exclusive. He is the only way. He is the only Lord. He is the way and the truth and the life. I don't know if you knew this, guys, but in church history, you know who has martyred more Christians than any other group? The Roman Catholic Church. They have killed more Christians than any group. In case you think that the Roman Catholic Church and Christians are in the same group. They have martyred more Christians than anybody else. I don't say that to be impolite. That's just the truth. And what would they tell them? Just recant. Really since the time of the Reformation. Just recant. Just credit the Pope as being the head of the church. The Reformation, basically there were two things that were being... uh, Opposed, I guess you could say, or, 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 or fought and fighting over the truth of who's the head of the church, right? The Bible says Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus said, I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The Roman Catholic Church said, no, the Pope is the head of the church. They got a lot of Christians killed because they refused to bow to the Pope. They said, no, Christ is the head of the church. And then the other one is salvation is by grace alone. You know, there's many groups that will say, they will use the language that, yeah, we're saved by grace, we're saved by faith. A Mormon will tell you that. A Roman Catholic will tell you that. But where the difference is, is the word alone. We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone in Christ alone. Nothing, again, if you'll just recant this alone business. You guys have heard of the five solas, 
that came out of the Reformation. That's just a Latin word alone. That we're saved by grace, or by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Through the glory of God alone, right? But through the Word of God alone, the Scriptures are our authority. The Gospel stands alone. That's what we're going to see. This is the Gospel. It stands alone. To repent, the command in Scripture, Jesus says, repent and believe the Gospel. To repent and believe this good news, that Christ can save you, that Christ can forgive you, is to reject all the false Gospels. You can't have it both ways. Either you're saved by something you do, or you're saved by what Christ has done. You guys heard me say it a few weeks ago. I am saved by works. And you go, whoa, you back up. (laughs) But who are the works by? Jesus Christ. We are saved by His works. His perfect, obedient life and His work on the cross is ultimately what saves us. Okay? It's not our works. No, to repent and to believe the gospel is to reject the false gospels. Not to mix them or not to join them. We're not to join false gospels. Because as we're going to see when we do that, the true gospel is destroyed. Listen to this, listen to this in John 10 verse 5. This beautiful statement by Christ. He said, my sheep will not follow a stranger. My sheep, those who have the Holy Spirit, those whom Christ has called to Himself by grace. He says, my sheep will not follow a stranger, but will flee from Him because they don't know the voice of strangers. If you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, you're not going to believe a false gospel. It's not going to happen. You've been called out of that. Now, am I saying that there cannot be a Christian in a false group? No, no, I'm not saying that. But give them time and God will call them out. You cannot remain in a false cult or a false gospel believing what they teach, knowingly believing it, and call yourself a Christian. Because it opposes the gospel. Very clear. So in our text in Luke chapter 5, we're going to let this look at this obscure passage and hopefully have some clarity and hopefully you'll see, wow, that's actually very clear. That's what I discovered in studying through it and preparing. That this, is, this is actually a very clear passage when you know what it's saying. So the conflict is growing, church, with, with Christ and the, and the religious leaders of His day. It's growing. Again, you're going to start seeing them we were introduced to the Pharisees a few weeks ago, and they're just, they're always around him. You know, it's like, are they following him? Or, but they're always there, it seems like, because they hate him. And so we see the conflict really beginning in verse 17 in this chapter that we looked at a few weeks ago whenever he was teaching. He was, he was teaching, he knew there were some Pharisees present that had came even from Jerusalem, they had traveled far. Because they were, they were curious, but they also despised Him. They were envious. They had heard of what He had been doing. He had been healing. And so He knew they were there. And what did He tell the paralytic? Uh, young man, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> Immediately accused of blasphemy. Of course, it would have been blasphemy if He wasn't who He said He was. And so just to demonstrate that He was who He said He was, He, he said, 
so that you know that the Son of Man, which is a title of deity in and of itself, has the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up, pick up your mat, and go home. So he did that right in front of them. And that caused them to hate him even more. Who is this man that forgives sins? And so, and then last week, he, he called Levi to himself, tax collector writes, and then Levi threw a party for, for Christ and invited a lot of his tax collectors and sinners and friends. They had a party for Jesus Christ. He was hanging out with sinners. And the Pharisees heard about it. Oh, they just get, why do you and your teacher hang out with sinners? Don't you know that you're going to become unclean? You're breaking the law. Who is this man? So you can see the tension building. And so that's, it even escalates even more here. And so there are, uh, just to remind ourselves, beloved, there's two religions in the world when you break it all down. There's two religions in the world. God's religion, right, that came from God, that teaches that God came down to this earth to save us. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We were lost in our sin. And Christ came being fully God and fully man. Fulfilled the law of God. Suffered the penalty of God, the curse of God. Paid for our sin on the cross. It is finished. And now invites sinners to come. To repent and to believe. Every other religion teaches there's something you have to do. That's really the context of this whole, these parables here. So the first thing we're going to see, we're going to look at three things here. The first one, on the back of your outline, if you have an outline, you want to follow along. I try to keep these very simple with the text. Is We're going to see the nature of false religion in verse 33. The nature of false religion. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers and the the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. So who's the they? And they, and they, they said to him, well, this is both the Pharisees and the disciples of John, of John the Baptist. And you can see that in Mark, Mark's parallel account in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. He says it like this. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the, so the, day, the day is the disciples of John. Is that not surprising to you that the disciples of John are with the Pharisees? This is the, these are the two groups that came and asked them this question. The disciples of John. That's, that's a little bit surprising. So I'm going to share a few by, by way of just um, looking, at, looking at this in context to, to show us why that may be. And it would be surprising because John the Baptist in his ministry, he pointed to Jesus. That was the point of his ministry. He didn't point to the enemies of Jesus, right? You think of John chapter 1, verse 29. What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John chapter 3, verse 30. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. So he was always pointing to Jesus, not the Pharisees. I think it's also important to know, just to help us to understand um, why these disciples of John would have been with the Pharisees, that that not all who followed John were present at Jesus' baptism, nor were all convinced that He was the Messiah. Many of them, they didn't have a, a full understanding of who Jesus was. Okay? And you can see this if you'll, if you'll flip over. And I'm just giving you this real quickly 
by way of some background information to help us understand why John's disciples would have been with the Pharisees. In Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, you can see that Paul confronted some of these groups that maybe would not have been familiar with Jesus as John's disciples. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with baptisms of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were, there were in all about 12 men. Obviously, we're not going to get into the, the, to all that text, but just to show you that there were disciples of John that they didn't even know who Jesus was. And so, also, by this time, in, in Luke, in our, in our story here, by this time, John the Baptist was in prison. So he wasn't even present. He would, he would not have been present to, to confirm who Jesus is. And so... Even, even some of those disciples, I think this is important to remember as well. Even those disciples of John who didn't, who didn't believe in Jesus. But yet they made a, many of them made a serious, they were serious in their spiritual commitment, right? In their spiritual confession whenever they were baptized. And so you think of these people, maybe, maybe they're just, they're realizing they're sinners and they, and they, and they, and they're, and they're desiring to be religious, you could say. And so it would have been natural for these disciples of John, having no knowledge of Jesus, to gravitate to religious people, to gravitate to the most religious people. So maybe that's why they were hanging out with the, with the Pharisees. So these are the people who approached Jesus. The disciples of John and the Pharisees. And what were they accusing him of? They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. And the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. You know what they're accusing Jesus and his disciples of? They're accusing them of breaking the Jewish religious customs by refusing to fast and offer prayers. Did you know that fasting was one of the three expressions of outwardly demonstrating if you were a Jew, outwardly demonstrating how holy you were. you got to remember all of this religion that the Pharisees had developed, it's all outward. And fasting was one of the ways that you showed everybody how holy you are. The other two were prayers and giving of alms. Okay? Turn over to Matthew 6. This is really all just setting up this conversation that he's having with these guys. And why they're asking him this question. In Matthew 6, verses 2 through 6, we can, we can really see these three outward expressions of their piety here. And this is, Matt, or this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 6, verses 2 through 6. So this is Jesus speaking to the, to the people, to his disciples. So when, you're, so when you give to the poor, that's giving of alms. When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets 
so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Can you, can you just picture that, guys? The Pharisees? Sound, literally sounding the trumpet. We're giving to the poor now. Look how holy we are. And what was their motive? To be honored, so they'd be honored by men. So they got the reward. They got it in full. The applause of people. In verse 3 it says, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's all motive. You see that? It's all motive. Their motives were hypocritical. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. I think that was Jesus' favorite name for these guys. You're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners. Why? So that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward. Now let me ask you this, guys. Because we've been accused of this. We go to the bus station, we're fixing to preach. Alright guys, let's gather around and pray. You'll have some character walk by and say, Oh, you're a Pharisee. You're praying in public. It doesn't say it's a sin to pray in public. It's what is your motive. These men wanted to pray simply so they could be seen by men. Look how holy we are. We're giving to the poor. Now we're praying prayers in public. That's what Jesus was rebuking. In verse 6, But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then down in verses 16 through 18, he, He addresses fasting. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Man, Brady, you're looking kind of rough today. You didn't fix your hair. You're kind of filthy and dirty. Well, it's because I've been fasting. I've been fasting for 48 hours because I'm so holy. That's what these guys were doing. Everything they did was show. And Jesus is calling them out. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Make it to where it doesn't look like you've been fasting. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by who? Your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Beloved, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted twice a week. That was their practice. John MacArthur said it was on Monday and Thursday. (laughs) I'm sure he got that from Josephus or somebody like that. But they, they fasted twice a week. You know how many fasts were commanded in the Old Testament? A year? One. On the Day of Atonement. But you can see these guys in, in Luke. You don't have to turn there. But one of my favorite parables in Luke 18, the, 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 the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You can see that's what he says here. In, in 18, 11, and 12, the, the, it says, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank You that I'm not like other people. Swindlers unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. God, I fast 50... No, that would be 100 times more. You're commanded to do it once a year. He does it 100 times a year. I am 100 times more holy than what even you command, God. Look how holy I am. No, it's only commanded. There's only one time a command to fast. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. Obviously, we see other fasts in the Old Testament. Those are voluntary fasts. But this hypocrite, these hypocrites, this is the nature of false religion, to our point, number one. 
the nature of false religion. Can you hear the, can you hear the Pharisee in Luke 18? Can you hear his heart? Can you hear his self-righteousness? He was praying this to himself. God, I thank You that I'm not like other people. Do you hear the... the what's a word strong enough to describe that? Foul is what that is. Self-righteous. Wicked. I thank You I'm not like other people. That's the nature of false religion right there. I am so religious. I do so much good. I'm not like these sinners here. I'm not like other people. You know what? I'm a Baptist. Are you right with God? Yes, I'm a Baptist. I'm not like those other people. I'm religious. I've been a Baptist my whole life. I'm a Methodist. Fill in the blank. I'm a deacon. I'm not like other people. You know what? When you hear that phrase, they might not use those words, but that's what they're saying. I'm religious. God has to accept me. I'm not like the sinners. I've been faithful to my wife my whole life. You ever looked with lust? Then you are an adulterer. No, actually, you are just like all the rest of us. We have all become like one who is unclean, the prophet Isaiah says. Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who is unclean, right? Like the leper. We're spiritual lepers. We're unclean from head to foot. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy polluted rag. You're just like the rest of us, sir. You need a Savior. No, none of these things, beloved. This is the nature of false religion. What does false religion say? We can earn righteousness. We can earn righteousness before God. And Paul says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died needlessly in vain. The nature of false religion, church, is that it's all outward. It's all self-righteous. It's all an attempt of man to earn their way to heaven. And Jesus is constantly coming against it. Secondly, we'll see in verse 34 and 35, the newness of the Gospel. The newness of the Gospel. Newness. Am I saying the Gospel is like new? No, I'm not saying that. Just, so you, just to show you what I'm not saying. I'll tell you what I mean by new here in just a moment. But just to show that it's not new in the sense that <laughs> like you and I would think. Oh, like... It's something new. It didn't exist before. Listen to Genesis 3.15. This is the Lord speaking with Adam and Eve, and He's speaking directly to the serpent, right? Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He's speaking of Christ. He's speaking of the Messiah who would come from the seed of the woman, or He will be the seed of the woman. He... He's speaking to the serpent, speaking of the Messiah. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the hill. What's he saying there? He's telling the serpent that there's going to be one to come. He's going to crush you. He's going to destroy you. Yeah, you'll make him suffer. You'll bruise him on the hill. He suffered at the hands of godless men. Looked like he was defeated when he died on the cross. But ultimately, that's where he will crush you. On the cross, through His resurrection. That's prophetic of the Gospel. That's prophetic of Christ. That's referred to by theologians as the covenant of grace. 
That's a covenant God is making with humanity and it's a covenant of grace. I am going to send one to crush the serpent. What did Jesus say when He came? I came to destroy the works of the devil. And that's exactly what He did. It's also called the Proto-Evangelium, the first Gospel. This is the first mention of the Gospel. The good news that Christ would come to save sinners. So the Gospel is not new in the sense that it just sprang on the scene 2,000 years ago. But it goes back even further than Genesis 3. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Let me turn there. I had verses 9 written down, but I want to read verse 10 too. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Speaking about God who has saved us in verse 9 and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ, When? From all eternity. Or before the ages began. In verse 10, Paul says, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. The Gospel was in God's mind before the foundation of the world. It was revealed when Christ came. But that's not when it was thought up. And then in John 17, we hear Jesus speaking the same language. His high priestly prayer, I glorified You, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Can you hear the language in that? Theologians call it the covenant of redemption or the covenant of salvation. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, the Father given the Son a job to do. (laughs) You're going to go and you're going to purchase redemption for sinners. This Gospel is not new in the sense of 2,000 years ago. It's not new in the sense of it being right, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And oh, God had to wring his hands. And he had to come up with plan B. Oh, now what do I do? So the gospel's not plan B. The gospel's not even plan A. God didn't establish the gospel before the foundation of the world and say, well, but if this doesn't work, then what? No, the gospel, the cross was God's eternal plan. It's not plan A. It's not plan B. It's the plan that was always within the Godhead. And that's what Jesus is referring to. The work that You gave Me to do, Father. So how am I using that word new? I say all that just to say, that's not what I mean by new. I'm using that word new with the language that the parables that Jesus gives in our our parable that we're going to see, that we're going to look at in just a moment. The new garment, right? The new wine. And you'll see that here in a moment. So when I say the newness of the gospel, the newness 
the freshness as compared to this false system of Judaism that he's dealing with. So we'll get to that even more in a moment. But it's important to know, guys, because you'll be asked that. What's the oldest religion? Well, Christianity goes before there was ever time. It was in God's mind already. The cross was in God's mind before the foundation of the world. That's why I wanted to point that stuff out. But in verse 34 in Luke, He says, Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? You know what he's saying? Very clear. Even the Pharisees would have understood this. Because again, what's their question? The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Your disciples are like happy. Jesus is saying in verse 34, no one fasts at a wedding. You guys know that? Beloved, fasting, and you can see it in Mark's account or Matthew's account, fasting coincides with mourning. Okay? If you look at Matthew's account, he substitutes the words fast with, with mourn. So fasting coincides with mourning. And Jesus is saying, no one fasts at a wedding. No one mourns at a wedding. You know, tears of joy. I hope you're not mourning at a wedding. Something's wrong. It's kind of, you need to, maybe it's too late. But normally speaking, we don't go to a wedding and mourn and fast. What do we do at a wedding, guys? It's celebration. It's feasting. It's not fasting. Solomon had it right. In Ecclesiastes 3.4, there's, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, right? We need to have the wisdom to know when to do what. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. At a wedding, it's time to dance. It's time to celebrate. Not to mourn, not to fast. And then Jesus uses the phrase, He said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The Old Testament never uses the word bridegroom, though it refers to Israel as the bride of the Lord. But John the Baptist introduces this term in John 3.29. He calls himself a friend of the bridegroom. Again, he's pointing to Christ. And then, and then we have Jesus here introducing it here, this, this phrase bridegroom. And the New Testament speaks much of it. Paul compares the church, right? Uh, or he compares marriage to the church in Christ. In the book of Revelation, the church is pictured as the bride of Christ. You can jot these down if you want to look at them later. Revelation 19.7, Revelation 21, verse 2, verse 9, Revelation 22, verse 17. The beautiful language of picturing the church as the bride of Christ. And so what is Jesus saying here in verse 34? He is saying that it was just as absurd to expect his disciples to fast while He is here as it would be to fast at a wedding. That's what He's saying. Very simple. Why are they, they don't, They're not going to fast and mourn while He's here. That's what He's telling them. And if you notice, 
Their question in verse 33, it wasn't just about fasting, but fasting and prayer. Offer prayers. Your disciples don't fast and offer prayers. If you notice, Jesus doesn't even address that part. Why? Because of course they prayed. He taught them how to pray. But He didn't. That, so why were they asking Him this question? Because His disciples didn't offer these scheduled, hypocritical prayers. That's what they didn't do. And so, beloved, that's the point of of point number two, the newness of the gospel. The gospel is new, right? Not in the sense of time. It was in God's mind before the foundation of the world, before time existed. The gospel is new in the sense that it's all about the heart. The gospel is new, the freshness, the newness of the gospel, that it's about the heart. To replace this false system of Judaism that these hypocrites had developed, that they were teaching the people. What did Jesus say? I think we looked at it last week. You're like the, the, they're like the blind who lead the blind into the ditch. They're both going to fall into a pit. That's what false religion does. False religion it is led by those who are blind and they lead the lost. They lead those who are not converted into a pit. That's what he's saying. This gospel, no, the gospel is about the heart. Righteousness could never be attained by our works. You guys know that, amen? Righteousness could never be attained by the works. The Bible never taught that ever in the Old Testament. But these men had developed this false system. And Jesus hated it. It can never be attained. Salvation by works, by rituals, by ceremonies. No, the gospel, what does the gospel address? The gospel addresses the heart of man. And you can see this in the Old Testament. They should have known this. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26. The Lord says, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. What have we been talking about in, in the gospel of Luke? That Jesus cleanses the unclean. That's the hope of the gospel. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Right? What's the problem of man? The heart. Right? We tell people that all the time. The problem is your heart. When you turn on the 10 o'clock news, or in our case, usually we have the news on when I'm getting ready for work, Trish and I. Uh, what would that be? The 5 o'clock news? 6 o'clock news? I don't know. It's early. And so it's just like you listen to the news for 10 minutes and, and we both, every morning we go, wow, man is sinful and depraved. That's all it is for 10, 15 minutes before the weather. And then they get it wrong. <laughs> but I mean, it's just crime. It's just murder. It's rape. It's robbery. Why? Because the heart of man is evil. The heart of man is wicked. God promises that He'll give us a new heart. Why do we need a new heart? We know it, yes, by watching the news. We should know it by looking in the mirror. We should know it by looking at our own hearts. But the prophet Jeremiah tells us why. Because the heart of man is deceitful above all things. He doesn't say just a little bit wicked. He says desperately Wicked. 
But the promise of the gospel, praise be to God, He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new heart. He'll cleanse you. He'll cleanse you. You may be healthy physically. Maybe you don't have leprosy. But if you're not in Christ, you're a spiritual leper and you need to be cleansed. You need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. And that's why Christ came. He came to save sinners like you and I. In verse 35, Jesus says, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Right? Then they'll fast. They'll be sad. They'll mourn. You know, this, this language taken away that Jesus used, obviously this is referring to His death. And you guys know the disciples, they never got that, did they? They never got it. So after He was like, Risen from the dead, and he explained it to them, and then the light came on. Oh, now we see it. But he was always telling them, Son of Man's going to be crucified. Son of Man's going to be crucified. This is his first mention of it in Luke's Gospel. Listen to this, guys. Two verses in the Old Testament, Zechariah 13, verse 7. This was in the Old Testament. This, this, this prophetic word that Jesus is talking about, his death being taken away. Zechariah 13, verse 7. says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Do you hear that? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So Jamie, Carl, Josiah, remember what we were discussing yesterday? Psalm 7, 11, That the Lord is a righteous God of indignation. He has prepared His sword for judgment. He, his arrows are fiery shafts. And if a man does not repent... God has sharpened His sword. And we were discussing how, thanks be to God, that His sword fell on Christ. That's this language here. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. That's the cross. God struck the shepherd with His wrath, with His sharp sword, with His arrows, with His fiery shafts, God struck Christ on the cross so that if you repent and believe, He wouldn't have to strike you. Substitution, right there. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. Taken away. That's That's our phrase here. Jesus says, guess what? Hey, when I'm taken away, then they'll fast. And guess what, beloved? After His death... They fasted. If you want to, you can jot these down. I'm not going to turn there. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, and chapter 14, verse 23. You have examples of the disciples fasting. The apostles fasting. Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, He told His disciples, when you fast. Not if you fast. It was assumed that they would fast. Just not now. And so, beloved, fasting... To us, right? This is to us sitting here today. Fasting or any other religious activity, okay, was never meant to earn righteousness. Do you know that? You're not made more holy when you fast. That's not what it's for. You don't get extra points on your salvation card for fasting. Man, he's a holy guy. Well, he might not have been saved, but he now now he is. He fasted. That's not what fasting is about. Beloved, actually, we're never even commanded to fast, but it's assumed that we will. What fasting 
is a means of grace that God gives us. For what? To draw near to Him. That's what it is. We draw near to God. We draw near to Him when we fast. And it's a gift that God gives to us. It don't have to be 24 hours on the dot. (laughs) You can fast from a meal. You can fast from an activity. It's to draw near to God. That's what it's for. And it it can be a blessing. But typically we do it in times of in times of mourning and seriousness. Maybe you want to set aside a time of fasting to pray for certain individuals to come to Christ, whatever it is. That's the point of fasting. It doesn't make you righteous. Brother, this is the newness of the Gospel. Paul's language in Galatians 6, verse 15, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The false teachers were coming into the churches in Galatia and teaching, if you really want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. Paul says, that's irrelevant. No. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing but what? A new creation. That's the emphasis of the Gospel. Are you made new? Are you made new? God came down to earth to save us, to do what we could not do. And third, guys, and actually we're going to move through this part very quickly. It's the two parables. The two parables in 36 to 39. And he was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. We'll look at that one real quickly first. I'm going to read Matthew's account of that one because it's just a little different. But it'll help us in our understanding. You don't have to turn there if you want, but it's, it's, um, it's Matthew 9, verse 16. Matthew says it like this, or Jesus says it like this in Matthew's account, but, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. So he's telling them this parable. A metaphor, an analogy, right? A story. He did this a lot. told parables. Earthly story with a spiritual meaning. And he did this. Guys, these parables are really simple. He's telling this to illustrate the exclusive nature of the Gospel. Which is what we've been talking about. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, when he talks about this tearing a piece of... No one tears a piece of cloth from a, from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. This language here. He is saying it would be foolish to do this because, number one, it would ruin the new garment. Okay? You're going to ruin the new garment when you do that. The new garment would not work if sewn in the old. First of all, it will not match the old. It's not going to match. And even worse, after the new patch, patch garment is washed, the patch from the new unshrunk garment pulls away from the old, patch garment, and like Matthew says, a worse tear results. They would have known exactly what he's talking about. We can picture that in our minds, right? He said, you're going to ruin both of them. That's the result. You're going to have two ruined garments. What's the point of this? The gospel can't be patched into Judaism. That's the point. The gospel can't be patched into Judaism or any system of works. 
You can't combine the two. The gospel, beloved, is at odds with all false religion. It was then, and it is now. The gospel stands alone. It's also important to note, guys, also, that the old garment that he's referring to in this parable, is not, he's not talking about the Old Testament. Don't make the mistake of thinking, okay, the old garment is the Old Testament. No. The Old Testament pointed to who? Christ. The Old Testament never taught that salvation is by works. Never. Abraham was justified by faith, just like you and I. The old garment is speaking specifically about this false religious system that they had developed called Judaism. And that the Jews still practice now. It's a system of works. Jesus didn't come to patch the false system, but to replace it with the garments of salvation. Listen to this. Listen to this beautiful verse in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me in garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Where did that righteousness come from? Christ. Does it say, He has wrapped me with a robe of my good deeds? No. My righteous good deeds? No. Because again, what did Isaiah the prophet say about your good deeds? They're filthy rags. They're filthy rags. Unclean rags, if you know what I mean. Unclean rags. That time of the month. That's the language. It's a graphic language. Your good deeds are unclean in God's eyes, outside of Christ. So that's all, that, that's all that parable means. The second one is saying the exact same thing in verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. Wine was typically stored in containers made of animal skins, usually goat or sheep. The picture on the front of your bulletin that, that Trish found. Something similar. The new fresh wine, what would it do? It would ferment, right? New fresh wine would ferment. Will that happen? Gases would be released. And the skins would expand. If it was a new wine skin, the skins were, they, you could stretch them, they would expand to hold the wine. Jesus is simply saying, a, it would be a foolish thing once again to put new wine into old skins that had already been stretched. What's going to happen? Both the wine and the skins would be lost and ruined. So what's the point of this one? The same point. If you try mixing the gospel of grace with any system of works, the gospel will be lost and ruined. And guess who else will be lost and ruined? Sinners. Because when there is no gospel, there is no salvation. Paul says in Romans 11.6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He's not saying that it ever was on works. What he's saying is it can't be both. It's, salvation is either by grace or works. It's not a mixture. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Right? 
This whole, this whole ecumenical movement this coexists. We all, no, we don't have the same God. We don't have the same Gospel. They don't mix, beloved. The Gospel is exclusive. Mixing works with the Gospel makes what? A false Gospel. That, and that's what Paul says in Galatians that Josiah read to us. I'm going to turn back there again and read verses 6-9 through nine in chapter 1 because that's exactly what's going on in these churches. False system is being brought in and saying if you're, truly, if you're truly saved or to be truly saved, you need to be circumcised. That's the context of Galatians. In Galatians 1, 6-9, I am amazed, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different Gospel. One that says you must be circumcised to be truly saved. Paul says, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a Gospel contrary to to what we have preached to you, He is to be accursed. Anathemized. Damned. False Gospels damned. They were, these Judaizers believed in Jesus. They believed He was the Son of God. He died on the cross, but they said, you've got to be circumcised. And then verse 9, He repeats it, So I say again, if any man is preaching to you a Gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Beloved, we can't be mixing false gospels with the gospel. You, we ruin the gospel. We cease having the gospel. We no longer have the gospel if we add works. We just don't. That's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not a way. Not one of the ways. All the other ways teach works. The gospel says, by grace alone. Through faith alone and Christ alone. You don't blend Christianity with false religion. You don't blend Christianity with Roman Catholicism. We love Roman Catholics, but we don't mix the Gospel with their teaching. Or you lose the Gospel. You don't mix the Gospel with the teachings of the Mormon church. Because it's a system of works. Judaism is a system of works. Jehovah's Witness is a system of works. But I'll tell you, a new Gospel that's come along in the last what, three, four years? It's the woke gospel. What does the woke gospel say? Well, you need to be woke to your, your guilt of being white. You're guilty just from the fact you're white. And it's being taught in churches. And the only way to absolve or remove your guilt, some, some of them say, Reparation. You gotta pay money. You gotta bow down at their feet and confess and this and this. What does this teach? It's okay. Hey, that stuff's out in the world. Yeah, that's understandable. But to be in the church of Jesus Christ? The only way to remove your guilt? You mean I'm guilty by being white? I thought I was guilty by being identified with Adam. And I thought Christ said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. That's a false gospel. And it blurs the lines. It says, it says Christ's work on the cross is not finished like every other false gospel says. No, there's something else you have to do. 
No, Christ paid. I'll just say it like this. If I was guilty, if I have been guilty of racism in my own heart, Christ paid for it on the cross. In verse 38, real quickly guys, he says, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. New wine! The Gospel must be put into fresh wineskins. Those who know the Gospel is their only hope. I guess that's the, probably the clearest way you can understand that. The new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Those who know that the Gospel is their only hope. Just like He said above that, only those who know they're sick. That's who the Gospel's for. Do you know you're sick? Do you understand your condition? That's, that's, that's who the new wine is for. That's who the Gospel's for. Those who recognize their condition and their need of the Gospel. And in verse 39, he makes one last statement that I believe is only in Luke's Gospel. And it's a sad reality, this last statement. He said, And no one after drinking old wine wishes for the new. For he says, the old is good enough. This is a sad reality that's depicting those in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, those who reject the Gospel, they hear the Gospel, they even have the Son of God stand up before Him, but they hold on to their, their traditions. No, this is good. The old is good. Our traditions are good. Their long-time religion, they are set in their ways. That may sound like, you know what, this is my family's religion. I hear what you're saying about Christ, about His gospel, about forgiveness. But this is my family's religion. This is a phrase that you'll hear. Once a Catholic, always a Catholic. That's a phrase they use a lot. And it could be, it doesn't have to just be Roman Catholicism. But this is what my family always believes. I, I believe what you say. I even believe what you believe. And after all, we believe the same thing. No, that's not true. You have your beliefs, I have mine. You know, it's a sad reality that sometimes those are the hardest people to reach with the Gospel. The ones that are set in their ways. Many times, most of the time, it's easier to reach a heathen. Right? They don't have all that tradition. But what promise do we have in Romans 1.16? That the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The Gospel can penetrate even the religious heart. And we have proof of that from none other than the Apostle Paul who was a Pharisee. He was one of these men. You know, it's been asked, man, did, did, he, ever, did he ever have any dealings with Jesus? Probably not. But he was a Pharisee. He was a, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and he was saved through the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So beloved, that's what we're to do. We're to preach the Gospel. We're to plead with people. And God will say, probably not many, but He saves those type of religious people who are set in their ways. He still saves those, just like He saved Paul. The Gospel stands alone. Beloved, the Gospel, what is the Gospel? The Gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it stands alone. And that is what saves. And He is our, he is our one and only mediator that, that we need 
to stand between us and a holy God because He was God and He was man. And we're to preach Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Christ. We thank You for the simplicity of Christ. We thank You for the simplicity of Your Gospel, God. I pray that You will give us, Lord, a discernment, God, to know when there's false Gospels. And Lord, we don't we, we love those who teach false gospels, God. But we hate the system. We hate the false gospels because they can't save. So Father, help us to be like our Savior. Help us to not compromise the gospel, Lord. Um, to, to love those individuals who are caught up in them. To love them enough to be able to tell them the truth and to warn them about about Christ, about judgment that's coming on all who don't have a perfect righteousness that comes through Christ alone. Lord, we love You today. We praise You today. In Jesus' name, Amen.